Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 161. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt and sincere thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. June's prize is a book bundle containing the three novels in Tony Rich's Elizabethan series. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. Next weekend, I'll be chatting to Brooke Little about the musical lives of the Tudor Queen's consort. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or perhaps using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about reproduction and the female body is Julia Martins. Julia is a historian of medicine and gender. She's a final year PhD candidate at King's College London. Her research is about 16th and 17th century medical recipes about the female body and reproduction, called Secrets of Women. In her thesis, Julia studies how these texts were translated from Italian into French and English, and what that can tell us about the way the body was understood. Julia is also an intersectional feminist and her work often draws comparisons between the body in the past and contemporary debates. She volunteers at the Vagina Museum in London and with the Vivengers, a charity fighting to end gender-based violence. Julia was born in Brazil but currently lives in Hertfordshire in the UK. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome to Talking Tudors, Julia. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you, Natalie? Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so excited. I've been very much looking forward to our conversation. So it would be it would be wonderful if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background. So um, I'm a historian. I'm currently finishing my PhD at King's College London. And my research is about early modern medicine and gender. Uh, So I'm very much interested in the Tudors, even though I focus more on the anonymous unknown people and not so much you know kings and queens but yeah so as an, and as a, f- a feminist i'm really interested in thinking about how the way that people understood the body in the past can shape contemporary discussions so i'm always trying to bridge this gap and sort of use history to inform like current discussions and i've recently started uh, writing about that and it's been really fun and stimulating sometimes i think as historians we get a bit lonely in the archives by ourselves and libraries and you know so it's nice to to do more contemporary stuff stuff as well so yeah plus it's a break from the never-ending revision of my thesis yes oh I can imagine absolutely and it's such a fascinating subject so as you've said a little bit about already your research it is about 16th and 17th century medical recipes which I think is wonderful about the female body and about reproduction as well so what do these texts tell us about the way the body was understood in this period So I think that the main thing that these recipes offered uh, readers was a way in, a way into the mysteries of the body and especially the female body. So these um, medical recipes about reproduction and fertility, they were usually called secrets of women. So, and I think that preposition tells it all, it's secrets of women in the sense that they are both about women and the female body, but they're also produced and used and, you know, they are the, the fruit of women's own traditions as well. So it's very interesting because um, these recipes, they were published in the vernacular in English and they promised readers a way of understanding and crucially of manipulating the body as well. So reproduction or generation, as it was called back then, was crucial to people but it was something mysterious so these books aim was really to unveil these secrets to readers and they they were very practical they show how how people believe that the body could be acted upon could be manipulated and the recipes um, offered then readers ways of doing that of managing the body and especially reproduction yeah, it's so fascinating. And I love the title, Books of Secrets. Like it just sounds yeah. so intriguing. Intriguing. And yeah, absolutely. And this was a best-selling genre in the 16th century. So you've already touched on this a little bit, but what kinds of recipes might they contain? So these these books, they're really, they're fascinating genre because they're so eclectic. So if you if you open these books, they have all kinds of different knowledge, really. So the, the one thing that unites all these, these different recipes is how they have all the knowledge in Books of Secrets, it's very much practical knowledge. So they are how-to manuals, they're domestic guides for everyday life. And so they contain recipes for everything. So cosmetics, food preserving, alchemy, medicine, how to take care of animals, magic tricks if you're having guests, or how to produce golden ink or invisible ink, how to dye your hair blue for carnival. You have everything in these books. And that's why reading them is so fascinating because you turn the page and you go from abortion to blue hair. And I find that just so fun. 
so fun to read. And so Secrets of Women were among these recipes. They were roughly 10% of the content of these books. And so the, these specific recipes, they included ways of stopping, inducing menstruation, how to facilitate conception, how to deal with childbirth pain, produce more or less milk. There were aphrodisiac formulas, uh, ways of inducing abortion and, and other things like that. And I, I think that's why these books were so popular, you know. And I'm, I mean popular in the sense that both senses, in the sense that they were consumed by a large number of people and also that they were read by people of virtually all social classes. Even people who couldn't read really had access to them. They were sometimes read aloud or memorized or collectively owned. Anyway, so they were present pretty much everywhere in, in Tudor society. And because of the printing press, they were very cheaply sold. They were small books, usually pocket size. And because they were written in the vernacular, so in English and not in Latin, they were very accessible to people and they were trying to answer readers' demands on, you know, practical advice for everyday matters. So this was very much a time of how-to books. And just in terms of medicine, there were regimens, herbals, almanacs, surgical manuals, midwifery manuals, plague books, all kinds of books. And they were all popular. But I think Books of Secrets were particularly successful because they were so eclectic and because they offered readers ways of understanding the world around them and manipulating nature and the body to improve their lives, basically. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that was a fantastic answer. That's, there's so much in there. And before we start looking at some of those areas in more, more detail, I just wanted to ask you, so is it men, obviously, that are writing these books or do we have women writing the books or are women contributing and then, you know, it's published under a, a man's name? How did that work? So that's, yeah, that's a fantastic question. And uh, it's a bit frustrating because most of these books, they are attributed to men, but, and the, the idea of authorship and author and authority, it's all a bit tricky because they are usually compilations of recipes, they're collections. And the recipes themselves, they come from all kinds of different sources. Sometimes they're copied from old manuscripts, sometimes old authorities like Pliny the Elder, that's how far back they go. Sometimes they're taken from, you know, your neighbor misses something who just had a child suffering from the same thing your, your kid's going through. So it's tricky because in terms of attribution, it's not always acknowledged where the recipes are coming from. But we can see that there are different kinds of sources, both ancient and contemporary to the writing of these books, both in manuscript, in uh, print, but also, as I was saying, just oral traditions as yeah. well. And yeah, so the, the people who were behind them were usually known as the professors of secrets because they were professing secrets. They were, <laughs> you know, divulging them and sharing them with, with the public. But um there, were, there was one famous professor of secrets who was a woman, allegedly. We don't know much about her and it might be, it's probably a pseudonym. So Isabella Cortese was her, was her name. Oh, yes. And we, we don't really know too much. I'm sure you came across her name. Yes, was, I have. Yeah, yeah. Very famous. Yeah, but many of these um, professors of secrets did write that they had collected th these recipes throughout their lives and uh, in travels. And some of them do say that even quote-unquote poor little women had contributed some recipes so yeah women are there but you have to dig a little to find them yes which seems to be um, always the case I think at this yes. point um, so 
what let's let's look a little bit more in detail at these areas so what did women in the 16th century do to induce menstruation and how did these practices relate to contraception and abortion as well so that's an interesting question because um, it makes us rethink some of the categories that we use today and how complicated it can be to apply them to the past. So, um, and that's something that uh, I realized very, very early on in, in the research because I started very optimistically when I started my PhD. I started creating all kinds of databases because I wanted to compare recipes. I wanted to compare the ingredients and quantities and the procedures, whether it's distillation or, you know, I just wanted to, to compare everything. And, and then I was surprised, especially in terms of ingredients, by how many of them were used for all kinds of different recipes. So I felt like, you know, when you're in, in your teens and you're studying for an exam in school and you, you're highlighting the, <laughs> the textbook and then you realize that you've highlighted everything and that's useless, really, because you might as well just paint it with a brush, you know. And that's what I was doing. All most ingredients were being checked for multiple categories and I realized that databases were useless, really. So yeah, things like uh, cinnamon, pennyroyal, saffron, nutmeg, parsley, they were used for, for all kinds of recipes. And that made me start thinking that, well, there's clearly quite a bit of overlap between these formulas. And why is that? And so I started to think that, well, that shouldn't really be surprising. If you're trying to stimulate menstruation, induce an abortion, or deliver a fetus that has died during childbirth, induce childbirth, or deliver a retained placenta, all these recipes, what they aim to do is make the womb contract and expel whatever is in there, right? And so it makes sense that they would use similar, you know, ingredients and procedures to, to reach that goal of basically emptying the womb and, and quote-unquote cleaning it, as, as they often uh, wrote. Uh, so it, it would make sense that these formulas have much in common. And another another issue that I had early on was the difference between menstruation recipes, so the recipes on how to induce menstruation and the abortion ones. That was very tricky because, uh, as I'm, I'm sure you know, abortion in this period was a bit of a blurry category in the sense that before quickening, so before fetal movement and before insolment, so before the soul entered the fetus body, abortion was not that big of a deal, if I can say that. You know, and so people had much more agency than we usually think to decide whether to continue with this pregnancy or not, especially because it's such a private experience in the beginning. It's something that you can you can keep secret for a while. And then after that, then abortion had uh, much more serious social, religious, um, legal consequences. But for the first time of it, for the first like three, four months, for the first period, trimester really of pregnancy, there was quite a considerable window of time and opportunity where you could do something. And the thing is that because today we always have this association that a missed period is a sign of pregnancy. You see that in TV series from Sex and the City from, you know, it's always something that the character realizes, oh, I didn't get my period, so I must be pregnant. And we tend to assume that's how people felt in the 16th century, and it wasn't. So the absence of menstruation wasn't necessarily a sign of pregnancy because of malnutrition, yeah. because of, of many other factors, people sometimes didn't menstruate or they skipped a few periods or they didn't keep track. It was just not something that was considered as crucial to determining pregnancy as it is today. So you might very reasonably just think that you're not having a period because you're not having it. 
and then you want to induce it. And the thing is that in this humoral understanding of the body, in which the fluids are in balance, women were thought uh, to be um, healthier when they had women of fertile of a fertile age, right? So when they had regular healthy menstruation, it was something very much connected to their overall health and especially to to make sure that conception would be possible. You know, you couldn't you couldn't have the fruit, so the baby, without the flower, the you know, the menstruation, the blood. So if you weren't having your period, you it was something that was considered a serious medical concern and you might need to do something about it. And then you would use one of these recipes. So it's impossible to know really when the people using the recipes were just trying to reestablish a missed period just to go back to their normal healthy menstruation or when they were voluntarily trying to induce an abortion. It's, it's a bit blurry, but that's why I think it's so fascinating that we have to be careful with not imposing our own categories yeah. in the past, not, you know, and just giving them room to think of these things differently. And as historians, I think we have to be very mindful of the language we use and how we classify things, you know. So for us, reading some of these recipes, and that's the problem I had with the database as well. I wanted to, to write down, well, this is an abortion recipe, this yes. is a menstruation recipe, but it's often both. And... Yeah, so it's it's a bit tricky to separate them. And in terms of uh, contraception, there's a bit of overlap as well, not as much as with abortion. But um, people could have um, could use recipes to avoid pregnancies. Like they they were usually pessaries, so um, a piece of cotton or or some kind of fabric uh, soaked in a herbal solution that you would insert in the, into the vagina, and it might help. It often didn't. Yeah. And I think that's that's why you know. For most of our history, abortion was much more important in terms of, of controlling the size of your family than contraception was, really. So there were contraceptives available, for sure, but I think abortion played a much bigger role in, in, you know, in controlling how many children you, you would have. So, so I think whether they worked or not and, and how they worked, the recipes in these books, they offered readers hope, really. They offered them a prom they promised readers really to control the uncontrollable, if we can yeah. say that, in terms of reproduction. Yeah, such a fascinating insight. And and if we're talking about the women who were hoping to conceive, what advice would they find in these books in terms of conception? So the main thing, as I mentioned, was the clean, quote unquote, clean, empty womb. So contrary to what we know today about fertility and ovulation and all that, it was believed that um, the best time to conceive was right after menstruation, because that's when your womb would be ready would be clean and empty and ready to receive the male uh, seed so sperm so the main advice is always to maintain a regular healthy menstruation in terms of the quality the kind of the blood uh, the quantity of it it's very specific advice about how you know to attain that perfect menstruation if we can say that but again thinking of uh, of humors and the humoral theory so men were usually considered um, hotter and drier than women, and women were colder and wetter. So many of the formulas, such as aphrodisiacs, they would also help conception because they would heat 
the womb. So not only would that stimulate, you know, sexual desire, but that would prepare the womb to receive receive the sperm. And so by making it um, hotter, really. There were also recipes to make the womb less slippery so that the sperm didn't, you know, slide out, slide, <laughs> slide out. Yeah, it's hard to describe this. But yeah, so that this, the male seed would remain inside and basically do what it was supposed to do, really. Um, there were cases um, doctors wrote about, um, you know, excessively hot wombs, but that was very much the exception, not the rule. So there were recipes to counteract that as, as well. Um, excessive windiness in the womb could also be a problem that uh, some recipes try to address. But again, because there was so, so much overlap between medicines um, and food, uh, many books suggested foods really to prepare the body as well as advice on sexual positions or sleep or when you should have relations. It was often uh, suggested that the best time would be when you wake up in the middle of the night that you're sufficiently rested because you've already slept four, five, six hours and you have lots of energy and you're not feeling too heavy from dinner or whatever you ate before bed. So that was a good time to, you know, embrace <laughs> embrace your, your wife, as the books write. Also, women were supposed to be not too fat, not too slim, to be at their, you know, optimal fertility. And so there was also advice to either gain weight or lose weight, um, depending on the, on the woman's body. But again, the main thing is always going back to maintaining overall health, overall strength, and a healthy, regular menstruation, really. Fascinating. And in terms of obviously the, the child's, the baby's gender, you know, is a very important topic in this period. And certainly for, for women of, you know, higher status women, this could be something extremely important. Uh, so were there any ways was it believed that you could actually influence the the gender of the baby yeah so again it's about trying to control the uncontrollable right it's trying to uh have power over something that was thought to be ultimately defined by god really but there were many beliefs from uh, deriving from humoral theory from sympathetic and astrological medicine and other traditions as well so um going back to what i was saying earlier about um temperature they uh, temperature could play a key role so so hotter wombs were thought to be more likely to produce boys because boys were men were hotter and drier than women so colder um, wombs were more likely to produce girls the right side of the body uh, was also associated with masculinity and the left side with femininity so the testicle from which the male seed came or the part of the womb in which the fetus developed that could all play a role potentially. So women could be advised, for instance, to lie on the right side to increase the chance of conceiving a boy. And there were many recipes like that, including uh, this kind of like simple advice really about just turning to one side or the other. So there were also many recipes about how to predict how many how many children, especially male children, someone would have. And again, it, it just seems a way of alleviating readers' anxieties of offering them a way to feel like they can influence something, which ultimately they couldn't really. But yeah, so things like, for instance, how many knots there would be um, after a delivery. So a baby is born and the midwife is looking at the umbilical cord and she can count the knots, right, um, in, in the cord. And that could be the number of children that this person would have 
you know, in their lifetime, or it could be how many pregnancies, but then doesn't mean that the child would be born alive or that wouldn't have something like a miscarriage wouldn't happen or an abortion, who knows. So things like that could offer clues. But again, I think it was just about trying to make readers feel that they could potentially have agency over that. Yes, because this is a time, isn't it, where, you know, there's so much that you don't control. So I, I can understand how that would offer people hope and, and make them yes. feel a little bit more powerful. And I was just thinking yeah. of those, you know, those traditions of knowing what the gender of the baby is. I remember in my family and my grandmother also doing this with the ring. I don't know if you know this one, the ring over the oh, tummy. Yes. And I just wonder where yes. that even, I've never looked up where that originated, but whether it swings one way, I can't remember now, circles or swings, yes. but there's yes. so many of these different traditions. Yeah, no, I, I've, yeah, I've heard about that as well. Yeah. And even I mean, so I'm, I'm originally from Brazil. And uh, I remember when I was pregnant, people would tell me about, you know, the, the shape of my belly. Yes. If it's point, if it's pointy, then it's supposed to be a boy because, you know, it's phallic, I guess. Or if it's round, it's a girl. There, there are all sorts of, you know, old wives tales like that. And um, even things that that sometimes seem to make sense about, you know, like even acne being more or heartburn things that are yeah. usually more correlated to having a boy or a girl but yeah i think especially for royal women it's it's something that it's so crucial and it's something that you won't know until the delivery and of yeah. course i mean we're only talking about you know medical recipes here but the main way that people would try to to have a boy really would be praying and you know asking god i think that that's definitely the, the the most important way in which people try to determine what was happening to them and to their bodies small tricks could help as well why not and so if a woman did conceive and she was pregnant what's the advice that was given I, I remember one of the ones that I I know hearing is not to look at anything kind of unpleasant because that may somehow you know affect mother and baby so what are some of the the advice they were given yeah so um well in terms of foods uh, there were many foods that women should avoid during pregnancy excessive exercise as well uh, so again just like with sleep most advice uh, concerns moderation and uh, like you mentioned there were some some advice uh, some advice pieces that sound very weird today but that they do make sense if you if you accept the premise of, of you know where they're coming from and what's the logic behind them and I think a great example is this what you mentioned the power of the maternal imagination so it was believed that the woman if she especially visually if she saw disturbing ugly images that might shape the baby uh, the baby might have birthmark in that shape or it might affect the color of their skin of their hair uh, in a very famous um, slightly later uh, 17 especially popular in the 18th century Aristotle's masterpiece that was a very popular book not by Aristotle at all but um, it, it was about well sex reproduction and things like that and there was a case of a woman who gave birth to a hairy baby and you know and it was because of the images she had seen um, during pregnancy so women could be advised to look at very beautiful angelic depictions you know of saints or, or angels even of beauty to try and, and shape what the child would look like and yeah there were many many cases in these books like that in which weird anecdotes would be shared with the reader about a woman who hadn't done that and I just find fascinating this idea that the maternal imagination was so powerful that it could shape the matter in her womb. So it's not about women just being a vessel, 
you know, just providing basically the environment for the male seed to act and, and nourish it through menstruation because it was believed that menstruation was the fetus nourishment which would later turn into milk and and then it would nourish the the baby once once it was born i i just i just find that fascinating and another advice that was very common in these books was um going back to the menstruation recipes and abortion recipes that we were talking about earlier um, many of these recipes use ingredients like parsley that you would consume you know in your diet and so many of these recipes they would start with a warning so that pregnant women would stay well away from them and uh, so that they wouldn't cause an involuntary miscarriage but then maybe a voluntary abortion as well and that's another category that also doesn't work for the for the early modern period for Tudor times is about you know the difference between a miscarriage being something that just happens and it's beyond your control in abortions it's something that is provoked or induced very much not the case in this period where the, the text well there's no difference between these words they're used as, as synonyms really and i find interesting that the recipes start with warnings like that uh, so that people can be careful and not inadvertently um, terminate a pregnancy but they also serve as a way of advertising the recipes for that end if that's your goal that's you right. know? and I, I and i think that's so interesting because yeah it can be something to well stay away from it well actually if that's what you want this is a recipe that will do that i i started going through these recipes a lot and eventually i realized that the main what determines really what a recipe is for is not so much the title of the recipe the ingredients or the procedure it's your bodily state the 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 state of the body of the person who's using the recipe, who's following the recipe. So the same recipe, if you're eight weeks pregnant, might cause an abortion. But if you use the exact same formula when you're eight and a half months pregnant, it will just induce labor. So depending on, you know, your intent as the one using it and the state of your body, the same recipe can be used for completely different things. And and I find that very interesting because it makes us, again, rethink the categories and rethink the classifications that we used for the past. Absolutely. And in terms of the recipes themselves, were they quite detailed or are they a little bit vague in terms of um, ingredients and procedure, kind of assuming that you've got some knowledge perhaps already? So there's, yeah, there's a mix of things. Some recipes have pages and pages of instructions, specific quantities, specific procedures that you have to follow. Sometimes um, to determine the time of cooking something, it's, you know, the time of praying our father. You know, a religion is very much, especially prayers, are very much a way to measure time in the past, right? Because you're not going to look at a clock or something like that. Uh, so some of the recipes, they are very much in that detailed style, but most of them aren't. So if you have uh, recipes with herbs, it's very often not specified if the herb has to be fresh or dried or whether you have to use the leaves, uh, the flowers, the root. It's just expected that the person following the recipe knows a lot, even though these were, you know, cheaply made books in the vernacular for a very wide readership. It's assumed that you'll have a certain knowledge as the reader in terms of quantities of proportion and how to make simple things like sometimes the instructions are make an ointment you know or make a powder uh, they don't mention a mortar and pestle you're just it's presumed that you know that you need one or you know even for more, more complicated things like distillation it's just assumed 
that you'll have these things in your kitchen, you know, the vessels and everything. So it's it's quite interesting because they are aimed at humanists, but also, you know, empirics who are just wandering the, the countryside and they just expect readers to know a lot. And I think that that says a lot about the lower classes in this period as well, because sometimes it's so hard to study, to study them because, you know, of sources and the lack of them, really. But books like this aimed at these kinds of readers, they give us a clue that, you know, more literate people, the people who were producing the books, assumed they would know a lot. And I think that's very telling. And in terms of preparing for a child, you know, today, of course, I know when I was expecting my children, I did a lot of preparation work. It was all very exciting, getting you know, the clothes ready in the nursery mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing. Is there any evidence to suggest or to tell us a little bit about the process that women in the 16th century went through? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it very much depended on class, like today. It depends very much on on how much time and money you have basically to prepare. So if we're thinking of the higher classes of royal women, there would usually be a service in church to ask for God's blessing for, you know, for the pregnancy and later for the birth. The pregnant woman would start her confinement weeks or even a month before the delivery. So uh, she would go into a usually darkened room where tapestries hung covering windows. So it's a very womb-like environment really where it's dark and, and hot and cozy. A fire would be on pretty much all the time if, if if the woman could afford it, even in summer, really. I imagine it wasn't very pleasant, especially in summer. It seems lovely in winter, but I don't know if you're giving birth in the middle of the summer, it doesn't sound that great. So this woman would be confined and she would be attended and, you know, helped and served by other women. So usually, usually if, if, it's, if it's someone royal, she would have many attendants, but even women from lower social classes, they would have their relatives and friends who would act as, as her gossips and uh, they would take care of the mother really help to to prepare for the delivery they would be there doing the childbirth and this kind of care would continue after the, um, the delivery as well besides that um, besides the the environment being dark and warm there would also be like we were saying about images nothing too figurative really usually floral patterns things like that and tapestries so as not to disturb the mother if there were images it's usually saintly angelic images nothing nothing ugly at all so prayers would be said and relics would be used before the reformation really after the reformation everything changed in terms of you know childbirth but before that the virgin mary was very much evoked in uh, in prayer but also in birth girdles so um, they would write down prayers in these um, belts, really, and wrap around the woman's uh, waist or, you know, or her thigh. And uh, there would be prayers for a safe delivery. And, well, not only the Virgin Mary, sometimes uh, St. Margaret as well. But all that changed after the Reformation, as we know, with, you know, the saints really losing their importance in, in terms of uh, the Anglican Church. Again, in terms of recipes, if we're thinking specifically about how to deal with uh, childbirth pain, that was something that struck me a bit in the beginning because it was something that I was so interested in learning more about and I found that there aren't too many recipes about that but again that shouldn't surprise us really because you know in the Bible God uh, God's punishment to Eve for the original sin is the curse of Eve as it's as it's known which is 
to give birth in pain. So it's um, in pain, you'll deliver children. It's, it's very much along those lines. And so, so for, for centuries, really, it was believed that childbirth pain was the way that things should be. So you, you shouldn't do too much to prevent it because it is God-ordained pain. And, and that's something that, I, that I, I find so fascinating because obviously women did try to make things as, as good as they possibly could for themselves. But you have to be careful with how you phrase that. So in um, Books of Secrets, there aren't really any recipes, I think, that I can think of about childbirth pain. What they offer readers is ways of speeding childbirth so it's how to make it just finish be over with quicker and yeah so it's recipes usually to help the womb contract and just get it over with but there were also recipes for lubricants so that midwives could examine the people giving birth and they so that they could manipulate uh, the baby inside if, if so needed so yeah most of the recipes to deal with childbirth are either lubricants or recipes to just make it go quickly, make it go away. Uh, so it's it's to deal with the pain, but also keeping in mind that it is a dangerous thing for women. So it was thought that the quicker it is, the safer it is, because you're not in this vulnerable position for that long. Longer labors were usually thought to be much more dangerous than shorter ones. Women are so clever, aren't they, getting around these yeah. things? <laughs> and, and you mentioned a midwife there. So how common was it to have a quote-unquote actual midwife present? And is this a predominantly female sphere, even when we're talking about aristocratic women as well? Yeah, so yes, if we're thinking of the 16th century of, you know, of the Tudors of the period, yes, the midwife was very much central in in the world of of childbirth and as the name you know secrets of women suggests all this universe of menstruation and childbirth fertility this is very much uh, a woman a woman-centered um, area of knowledge and physical space in the home where the the birth is happening so midwives in the early modern period were usually the women were the people who attended deliveries and of course class again comes into play so they could charge more or less depending on whether they were you know attending a royal woman or, or um, the wife of a baker or an artisan but um, midwives were thought to have such an important place in society that they they would help women for free even if it was a very lower class woman who couldn't pay for the midwife's services it was not uncommon for midwives to deliver babies for free it was part of their charitable work and it was just part of how the profession was was established so they were usually very um they were very skilled very much experienced in terms of how to deliver babies they usually had apprenticeships sometimes far more formal sometimes less so but they would um, spend a few years at least um, as a deputy midwife, so working with another midwife to observe and help and, and basically train. So for um, deliveries, uh, you could have a midwife, her deputy, maybe a nurse. You would have all these women around you who also had had children th themselves, so matrons, women from your family, your neighborhood, relatives, friends, women who would be offering their support and, and help. And then after that, in the seven, from the 17th century, onwards we see a gradual medicalization and masculinization of birth if we can say that you know so men starting to be, become more and more prominent in the world of childbirth as surgeons physicians and as men midwives it's something that um, starts to become 
more common. But midwives were very skilled and for a long time there was this myth in historiography in the way that, you know, historians write about the past, that midwives were ignorant, that they knew nothing and that's very much based on sources written by the physicians who were gradually overtaking the market and just trying to show how their skill was superior to midwives. But midwives could do so much. They could break the waters if needed, they could manually turn a baby so it uh, came down head first if needed, they, they could see how the birth was progressing, they could help women deliver on their knees, on a birth stool, lying down, standing up. They were really very adaptable. Yes, and this, all this group of, of women behind her, helping her, they, they would create this female sp space where the person giving birth would be very much supported. And in terms of postpartum care, what were the commonly held beliefs? Well, again, um, experiences changed greatly based on uh, social class. It's the same with uh, starting the confinement. So if you're a royal woman who starts your confinement a month before delivery, that's not the case. If you're working in the field, if you're a very lower class peasant or something like that, you might work right until the moment of delivery. And the same is true for the postpartum period. So usually more well-off women would have a longer lying-in period. They would be mostly in bed and they would be attended by these uh, gossips and the midwife might come over uh, and see how, how things were, but um, the women would be very much recovering and being taken care of in less wealthy uh, settings, the husband might um, temporarily take on some of the domestic duties of the, the, the mother who had just given birth. And of course, the poorer you are, the quicker you have to go back to work. Yeah. So it's it's something that we can see is very much shaped by, by class. But in terms of how specifically how this care would go, so the gossips would um, clean and cook and keep company and just um, just help this woman really. So they might uh, make her something like a coddle to drink. I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you came across it. I don't know if you've ever tried it. No, I haven't. Uh, it's, it's like eggnog, basically. Right, okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's so rich. It's very, I think it's delicious really, but it's super, um, super fat, super sugary, it's egg-based as well, and um, there are variants, you can add uh, nutmeg or cinnamon, ingredients like that, I think it. I think oh, it's I actually delicious. do think, it sounds but... like something, yeah, it sounds actually like something I've had, now I can't remember the name of it, my, my family's from Uruguay, so we're next door neighbours to Brazil, and there is something oh, that really? they would, yeah, that they would make with eggs and sugar, and yeah. I can't remember the name of it, but it sounds very similar. Yeah, yeah it might have been coddle, yeah. So yeah, it was very hot, very, uh, very sweet and was thought to really help with the recovery. And of course, after all this period, there would usually be a churching ceremony. So when the woman would be welcomed back into the social religious community and thanks would be given for the safe delivery of the child and she would be just reintegrated into society. And I'm sure that lots of our listeners have heard of the dreaded childbed fever, as it's often referred to, that claimed the lives of many women at this time, you know, of all statuses. So can you tell us a little bit about this and what we think caused it and any information that you've found in your research? So childbed fever or um, puerperal fever as it was known from I think the 18th century on, uh, it was caused by different kinds of infections that might occur uh, during or after delivery. 
usually no, no more than a few weeks after after the birth. So it's been documented really since antiquity in, in various uh, ways. The causes were not always known, were not usually known even, but it was usually thought that long deliveries were associated with it. And that's one of the reasons why you want to speed childbirth as much as possible. So, uh, so as to, you know, be less at risk of developing something like that. And um, of course, it's always uh, tricky diagnosing conditions of the past. And based on the sources we have, historians have guessed that maybe, for instance, um, Elizabeth of York, so Henry VII, uh, Henry VII's wife and the mother to Henry VIII, she likely died of childbed fever. And the same can be said for um, Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr, so both wives of Henry VIII. But it's always tricky. It's, it's something that we have to, as medical historians, like hold ourselves back and not go to the past with today's language, really, yeah. and try to, try to diagnose people. But it is very likely that all three of these uh, royal women had something like that. In terms of this period, of the early modern period, as we were mentioning before, there's a big shift in how people gave birth. So you go from giving birth at home, attended by a midwife, to giving birth more and more in hospital settings and being attended by male practitioners, so um, surgeons, uh, doctors, men, midwives. And so with this shift, childbed fever increased massively. There are many, many reasons for that, really. Uh, so as men started to replace midwives uh, and gain more and more access to birth spaces and, and hospital settings became more common, the main issue was that these hospitals, they were crowded. There was just so many people and the doctors would go from one patient to another, often without changing their, you know, their clothes or washing their hands. And sometimes they would even go to like perform autopsies and then they would go directly to the maternity ward after that. So they would go from the morgue, from a corpse, to, you know, uh, delivering a, a baby, which sounds horrific to, to us. But this, keeping in mind, this was before germ theory. This was before we, we knew anything like that. The humoral way of understanding the body was still the main paradigm. And there wasn't this idea of contamination through germs, really. So childbed fever just increased massively, especially in urban centers, especially in hospital settings. Uh, Paris, I think, was probably the worst, worst example, even worse than, than London. And then centuries later, so in the 19th century, Ignaz uh, Zemmelweis, he was known as the savior of mothers. And he was a pioneer, he was a doctor, a pioneer of antiseptic measures because he started, you know, noticing the difference in um, childbed fever and deaths in terms of the women attended by student midwives who didn't perform autopsies and, you know, male practitioners who did. And there was just a big difference, you know, in, in how many women would die. And so he started advocating for hygienic measures, antiseptic procedures, and that was very much not well received at all by the <laughs> medical profession. It was thought that, you know, doctors have gentlemen's hands and gentlemen's hands are clean, period. So, which sounds so awful in so many levels, uh, and it is, but, you know, so it took a long time for these practices to become accepted um, and to be widely adopted. And yeah, so it was definitely a difficult time to be giving birth in a hospital. You would be much better off giving birth, you know, by yourself in the countryside, in a farm. Yeah, so it was something very, very risky for women, childbed fever. And it did get worse when midwives lost their power, I think, over 
the birth birth space. That's so fascinating. I've never really looked into childbed fever post sort of Tudor time. So that that's really intriguing. So when it in terms of breastfeeding, is this something that was seen as advantageous? I know obviously for royal women that was that was tricky, but what about ordinary women? Were they encouraged to breastfeed their children? So I think this is one of those instances where you would be better off, you know, as a baby if you were born to a peasant, really. Because, uh, and and again, I don't want to be repetitive, but it did, people's experiences varied so greatly based on their social class. So um, breastfeeding was usually thought to be the best nourishment for babies and young children. So in the Tudor um, period, boys would usually be breastfed until they were three more or less, and uh, girls until they were two, because it was believed that boys would lead just a more active lifestyle, really. So they needed more strength, they needed more energy. But comparing to, you know, how breastfeeding goes today, it's it's quite a long period of breastfeeding. And uh, even though babies might be fed on other things as well, breast milk was thought to be the best nourishment. But the thing was, and as you mentioned with royal women, uh, well, wealthy women in general, really, not all mothers would nurse their own baby right so the poorer the woman usually the most likely it was that she would nurse the baby herself and the reason for that is that wealthier women and especially royal women were very much under pressure to produce as many as especially male as as possible so as as we know today people did realize back then that the longer you breastfeed usually the longer you delay fertility coming back and so because it was uh, very important for women to get pregnant again as soon as possible, it was considered just better not to breastfeed. And also it could negatively impact a woman's figure, it was thought. So, you know, just just something else to consider in, in, you know, in this context of patriarch. But yeah, so that meant that um, wet nurses would be hired, right, for royal babies, for um, babies born um, in noble households. And that's something that I find really interesting because in uh, period films or series, you often see wet nurses represented as just your local peasant woman yes. who has lots of children and she's breastfeeding, you know, um, Anne Boleyn's uh, Elizabeth as well. And that makes no sense at all. Because, um, so it was very much believed that the wet nurse's um, personality would be not transferred, but it would have an important influence on the baby through the milk. So who you chose as the wet nurse mattered. It was usually someone, if you're a royal, if you're a royal woman, you would choose another royal woman, someone from a well-known, respected family, someone who was as educated as possible, someone who was virtuous, uh, who did charity, who was pious, who had, you know, just good Christian values of the time, so that these uh, values would be transferred um, to your child. And many of these books, well, especially midwifery manuals, they would have whole chapters on how to choose the perfect wetness. So it's not something that you would do, you know, lightly. It was very important. So breastfeeding was definitely important uh, and it was advised for virtually all babies. But the one who would be doing the actual breastfeeding was not always the mother. I think that's the main takeaway. Isn't that fascinating? I don't think we have a record of who um, Elizabeth the first wet nurse was but that would have that would be such an interesting piece of information especially as you say because it would likely be a woman you know of a similar status obviously not the queen but of yes. similar status so that is fascinating I, I've never really thought about that so that's really interesting yeah. and, and something that I suppose I don't hear very much about is of course how people viewed infertility childlessness at the time so I know a lot of the times with some of the 
more well-known Tudor couples if they didn't have children. I'm sort of now thinking of George and Jane Boleyn. Immediately people jumped to the conclusion that it was a horrific marriage, they didn't love each other and all this sort of thing. But of course there could have been a lot more going on at the time. So tell me a little bit about what you found out about how people viewed this at the time. Yeah, I think I think that's so interesting. And it's another instance where the wealthier you are, you know, the closer you are to to the king, basically, the more that's something that's important, yeah. you know. And um, so in Books of Secrets and uh, medical recipes in general of this period, you can see how worried people were about infertility. It's, you know, it's a patriarchal mm. society and infertility was at the same time a private problem and a public problem. So obviously in the case of, you know, the king, there's the matter of succession. But even if you're not that higher up, it's something that is very hard to just deal with privately. Your family, your community, people worry about your marriage, about, you know, about how things are going. And it's something that could be, you know, could stigmatize people, you know. Women were often blamed for it, but not always. So it was believed that men could be responsible for child childlessness as well. And something that I found in these uh, books that made me, it makes me giggle every time because the recipe is just, it's just so funny to imagine people following it in practice because, um, so there were recipes for couples uh, so that you know who's responsible. Is it the wife's fault? Is it the husband's fault? Why are there, you know, no children? And most of these recipes uh, involve two piles of grains, and then that can vary, uh, wheat, barley, some kind of grain. And then each person uh, would have to urinate, you know, each on a pile. And then after a few days, if if you saw something grow, like um, sprouting, that person was fertile. Whereas if nothing happens, then that person wasn't fertile. And, you know, so it's, it's, funny to imagine and I don't know how helpful it would be just to cast blame you know rather than tackling the problem as a couple but again that's me thinking as a 21st century person yeah it's it's something that was very important and besides religion people would turn to these recipes and they would suggest ways of you know of making you as fertile as possible and it again goes back to what we were saying about uh not not being too fat too slim too active having establishing a regular healthy menstruation it's something that is considered the best the best general advice specific sexual positions that you should uh, do or avoid were recommended but again it was not something that had an easy fix and it's something that could be be so difficult for people that it could even be used as an insult so my my phd supervisor laura laura gowing she wrote about how childlessness could be used as an insult you know, among women who were having fights, like neighbors who don't get along. And then, you know, it it could be used as a way to insult someone who you don't like. So that's how how much it weighed, you know, how much it it was something important, especially to women. And without, you know, going too much on a tangent on this. But, you know, if you're thinking about the witch craze, which was, you know, right around the corner, witches were often accused of causing impotence in men and uh, barrenness in women. So they were, the anxieties uh, around witches were very much connected to fertility and reproduction. And, you know, and witches would be described as harming babies and, you know, eating, um, using uh, children's fat for their formulas and potions and the cauldrons and whatnot. So it's all a bit, you know, it's, it's a whole other subject, 
but it goes to show how how much that was important in in that society uh, and how that reflects that society's fears and anxieties about succession and about an inheritance things like that most famously to those scholars have shown how you know childlessness to be more precise you know the lack of a legitimate heir because in Henry VIII's case he did have a male child but it was it wasn't a legitimate child so he couldn't he couldn't well become a king so that could shape a monarch's reign that could shape everything in the country and of course Henry VIII is the most um, infamous example but it does go to show how important it was to have children to just just keep society going and keep the status quo the patriarchy in order really absolutely and and i imagine that in all your years researching all this fascinating area of study that you've come across so many myths and misconceptions so do you mind telling us maybe just about one or two that have kind of popped up a lot yeah i mean that's a fabulous question and i'll try and i'll try to be brief because there's so many (laughs) uh and I love period dramas and I love, you know, TV film, TV film. I'm always just watching something and it gets me, it just gets me so annoyed. So uh, the first one is probably how so many women died in childbirth or did they, you know? So uh, yeah, don't get me wrong. People did die in childbirth uh, as we were just, uh, just talking about childbirth, um, childbed fever and all kinds of hemorrhage and all kinds of complications that could happen. So yes, people did die in childbirth, but... When you're uh, reading historical fiction, when you're watching a film, it seems like every other woman who's on screen dies giving birth. And that's just not how things were. So uh, you get this very wrong impression. And that's a myth that historians have been trying to correct it for, you know, decades with uh, very famous historians writing like, did the mothers really die? Like, is that true? And it, it wasn't, but it remains firmly fixed in popular culture. So it's hard to estimate, right, how many people died. And there were many regional variations, again, going back to social class. Uh, yeah, but it is estimated roughly that your chance of dying in childbirth was between one and three percent. That is a lot, don't get me wrong, that is a lot. If you uh, consider like the UK today, the average is uh, seven deaths per a thousand, a hundred thousand live births. So it's much lower, but it's not like you're flipping a coin. It's not 50-50, you know, one to three percent is a lot compared to today, but not if you're thinking of historical, you know, uh, dramas. And this difference, like from one to three percent, yeah, there were many reasons for that. But I think the main one was maybe town and country. So if you're giving birth in dirty, crowded London, then you're much more likely to have problems. Whereas if you're in the countryside, fresh, clean air, uh, you know, and not um, not that crowded, things could be could be much better. So yeah, so if we're thinking of um, today, there there's also the racial differences, right? With uh, people of color being disproportionately more likely to die than white people today in the UK, which is just awful. And the same could be said about the past, you know, about these um, variations. But still, Still, early modern women were not as likely to die in childbirth as we're led to believe. And I think the misconception comes from the fact that, yes, your risk is between 1 and 3%. That's not a lot. Okay. But you wouldn't have one or two pregnancies in your lifetime, mm, right? Yeah. So if we're thinking of, of me and you having children today, you'll have, what, one, two, three, four, maybe, pregnancies in your lifetime? 
not more than that usually so if you multiply this risk for the number of pregnancies it's low because you wouldn't be pregnant that often but if you are a Tudor woman then you might have 12, 15, 20 pregnancies in your lifetime and that risk is then multiplied by the number of pregnancies and that's what makes it riskier you know it's the overall number the sheer number of pregnancies that that you would have right and yeah so if we're thinking in terms of pregnancies considering stillbirths uh, miscarriages abortions it's just it does get riskier yeah. right uh, so I think that's perhaps where the myth comes from but it is it's dangerous to generalize right and well uh, just another example and then I'll let you move on sorry it's no, just, no. It, just, it just drives me insane is that if uh, a character falls pregnant in a period drama right and oh no she was supposed to be a virgin and she's not married what do you do and she usually goes and sees this old dirty woman a hag sort of character in a cottage and like very much witch-like yes right? and yeah i love that i love that trope and she usually the woman would like lift a cloth covering all sort of like scary looking instrument like almost inquisition level of like torture instruments all the scary blades and then uh watching the film you're like horrified like oh no poor thing she's going to go through that and that drives me insane really because the problem is that surgical abortions are very much a recent thing so if you if you want to have an abortion in Tudor England that's not how you go about it not usually that could happen but that's not how how it would go usually there were many easier ways of having an abortion much easier than that so usually you would drink herbal solutions you could have um pessaries soaked you know with um abortifacients so with remedies to induce abortion and and it's something that could be easily done at home it's not something that uh would be so gruesome and i think that's that's a trope that we should definitely retire it's just for sensational hollywood purposes it's a myth and it's i'm over it let's stop it love it love it and i think now we're all going to be switched on and looking for that when we're watching our period dramas <laughs> yeah. um, thank you julia this has been such an intriguing such a fascinating conversation there is one last thing that we do before I let you get on with your day and that is what I call a game of 10 to go so basically 10 quick questions okay. just to get to know you a little bit better so the first one what was the last book that you bought or that you read I'm currently reading uh, Violetta Violetta I guess in English uh, that's by uh, Isabella Allende oh, and she's a uh, yeah, she's one of my favorite uh, writers, really. From and and she's just she's just brilliant at covering long periods of history through the eyes of always fascinating magical characters such as Violetta. And yeah, there's always just something uh, surreal and magical just about her her characters, especially yeah. the female ones, and about her really. I, I I think she's just fabulous. So yeah, definitely recommend that book. Oh, another one to add to my list. My list always grows yeah. during these episodes. And what about a favorite holiday destination? I think I really enjoyed uh, Korea. It's some, somewhere that I would love to go back. Um, I thought it was just beautiful, beautiful, uh, especially for cycling, if you like nature. Uh, and I don't know, I just thought, because Japan is so famous for the cherry blossoms, but yes. they, for me at least, they were even, even prettier in Korea. So it's a place that I would love to go back. The food is just out of this world and yeah I think that was my favorite ever holiday 
Fantastic. That's a good tip for the cherry blossoms if we don't, if we can't get to Japan. <laughs> so what about a film or a series even that you've watched more than once? Uh, keeping in line with the Tudor theme, I'm still very much in love with the 90s, uh, I think it's 1992 Orlando with uh, Tilda Swinton. I think that's just, I think that's just so fun it's just so fabulous i love how anachronistic it is by definition you know with time travel it's just it's just so fun and and i think she's fabulous i love the gender bending i love the how virginia wolf works so well uh you know with tilda swinton she's just perfect for that so yeah i think that's that's a film that i keep re-watching really fantastic and what about an ideal saturday night what does that consist of for you well, uh, so I have a toddler, right? Which doesn't <laughs> so allow really me nice. to. Yeah, it doesn't allow me to dream too big in terms <laughs> of what I could do with my Saturday nights. But uh, for me, uh, an ideal Saturday evening, at least, would be for her to fall asleep easily <laughs> and early. So you know, so that I can open a bottle of wine, have a, a nice dinner with my husband, maybe watch something silly, and get some reading done before I go to bed. Yeah, it's just very boring, but. I think, oh, as you know, as a mom, yeah, if your children are asleep, you're happy. So yeah, yeah. That, sounds, that sounds fantastic. And is there a new skill that you would like to learn? Yeah, so um, I'm finishing my PhD this year. I'm hoping that uh, that I'll be able to submit um, submit the thesis in the next few months, and then I want to learn Greek, ancient oh, Greek. Oh, fantastic! Uh, That's exciting never studied it and I'm completely clueless and I have no idea where to start but it's something that I really do want to start learning I think it's just it must be fascinating and I would just really enjoy having access to these uh, kinds of sources yeah. something that is beyond my reach now and I can only read in translation that's fantastic and it might be linked yeah. to the next the next question I was going to ask you which is what is a subject that you would like to learn more about so is there a particular reason why you'd like to to specifically learn ancient Greek? Well, I really like um, Greek plays and Greek literature in general. So I would love to read anything in the original. I know that's <laughs> probably, you know, won't be uh, doable unless I studied Greek, Greek for like 10 years or something. But eventually I would like to, to get there, to be able to read, you know, who knows, Odyssey in the original or something like that. Oh. That would be the dream you know? that'd be amazing absolutely amazing I love languages too that's my on my list of different languages as well um so what do you do to relax and unwind so I love uh cycling and uh where I am in in Hertfordshire I'm north of London but south of Cambridge and it's an area with lots of you know rivers and canals and it's very scenic it's great for cycling and yeah so that's what I do and I, I go on my full foraging mode I have my secateurs always in the basket of my bike and then I just get blackberries or flowers or whatever I find on the way and I, I think that's my favorite thing to do and my my daughter seems to like it I just strap her on and we go yeah, that's, 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 that's what I like lovely. to do the most yeah, that sounds really relaxing. And do you have any pets at the moment? Yes, I have a cat called Pancake. So I used to live in London and he was very much uh, an indoors cat. And we thought that he was such an English lord because I'm Brazilian, my husband's Brazilian, and he was the only <laughs> the Englishman in the family. And we thought he was such a lord, you know, so stereotypical. And then we left London and we came to well, the countryside, I guess. And now he has access to the garden and he keeps bringing us mice and 
yes. Falls, and we realize he's very much not <laughs> not a lazy lord. He's a hunter, and for the better or worse, I feel bad for the voles specifically. But yeah, anyway, so pancake. <laughs> pancake, excellent. And what genre of music do you enjoy listening to? I like jazz for writing and working, and I really like Brazilian samba for cooking and having fun. Because uh, I've left Brazil uh, almost 10 years oh, ago now. Wow. And yeah, and I really, I, I miss the music even more than anything else. You know, the, the food's nice and I miss that as well. But the music is by far what I miss the most. And so, so I always have on if I'm just like chopping onions or something like that. It's just something that makes me feel closer to home. And lucky last question. A person who inspires you, it, it might be somebody from history or someone contemporary. There are so many. And because, I mean, with the kind of uh, research that I do, it's women are always, well, often anonymous. We don't have any names. We don't know who they are. You know, it's we don't know anything about them. It's just you have to deduce their whole lives based on the scribble. And sometimes you get really funny women saying things like writing things like, this book is mine, not my husband's. And I really <laughs> like those, you know, those women. But about uh, women who who we actually know something about, I think uh, Lady Anne Clifford is someone who I find fascinating because of her reading habits and because of how hard she fought um, to keep her family's property. I think she's just a fascinating person. She would have in her, um, she would hang uh, pieces of writing um, everywhere in her room and her over her bed and she was always just reading and writing and and she just sounds like someone who I would love to to meet and and talk books you know yeah a woman after my own heart as well definitely yeah. <laughs> and and very last question for you is for a tutor takeaway so I ask all my guests for something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show so do you have a suggestion for us Oh, well, I, I would love for people to look at my own website, uh, yes, Secrets absolutely. of Women. So shameless self-promotion. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. You know, it's it's a recent project, but it's something that I'm very passionate about and that I enjoy writing. So it would be lovely if um, if people checked it out. But um, in terms of something not by me, I really, really love uh, Elizabeth uh, Norton's book, The Lives of Tudor Women. I'm sure many of, of your listeners have read it because, you know, it's such a great book. But it's, it's fascinating because it follows key moments in the lives of several different Tudor women. And then you get an insight into their lives. I think it's well written and it's just, it's just fun. Another read uh, that I enjoy, historical fiction, uh, is Sarah Reed's The Gossip's Choice. So she writes about uh, the life and work and tribulations of this uh, 17th century midwife in London who's married to an apothecary. So that's an interesting well, that book good. because it, yeah, it gives you um, it gives you a bit of context to what daily life was like for them. Oh, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, we're all curious about becoming Elizabeth, but, but we don't know whether, we don't know how good it's going to be. No, yet. I love we the cast, don't. We but... don't. I hope you don't have any of your, your pet peeves in there that are going to yeah. <laughs> We'll uh, look out for yeah. them. Yes, yeah. I'm looking oh, forward to that crossed. too. Yeah. Fingers it, crossed that it's good. Absolutely. It sounds lovely. Yeah. It does, yeah, and the trailer looks quite quite good. So, yeah, fingers mm-hmm. crossed. Let's see what happens. I'll watch it anyway because, you know, that's yeah, what I do. I, I'll watch it all. Unavoidable. Anything I can get my hands on is is fine. Uh, (laughs) Julia, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk Tudors with us. Oh, thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. This was lots of fun and I'm sorry for just rambling on and on about it. It's just that I love this subject and once I get started, it's very difficult to get me to stop. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.